Hi friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. My name is Jeremy McCandless and today we're going to focus on a really potentially transformative passage. Looking again from the Sermon on the Mount, the teachings of Jesus found within Luke chapter 6. It's all about loving your enemies today. Now, I know that's difficult. We encounter difficult people in our lives, all of us do. Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, provides us with a profound guide here on how to navigate these challenging relationships. So grab your Bible or just follow along with me and let's discover the transformative power of love in the face of adversity. Welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Okay, friends, before we dive straight into the teaching, let me share a story with you. Something that uh, I became aware of a few years ago, someone shared with me in a church situation. I want you to imagine a workplace where an individual employee, he's only been there a year, he joined with another chap, went through training together, and at the end of that first year, he's actually uh, elected as the employee of the year. But what he finds is his former friend, his former colleague, he finds himself facing continual resentment and hostility from that colleague. The other man, young man, they're both young men, they're only in their 20s, that young man became extremely resentful of him. Needless to say, a great tension existed from that point forwards. Then after a year, our friend was promoted out of the department and he was, uh, this is the, our, our employee of the year chap, and he went to be in another department and he had to be trained in that area of the business by his line manager. Problem was, the trainer was our first guy's friend's colleague's wife. The man in the previous department who didn't like him and resented him going forward. And of course, the new trainer the man's wife chose to take up the offence on her husband's behalf and she made life as hard as he could for our friend. She didn't train him properly. She made everything as difficult as she could for him. And in fact, one might reasonably say she certainly exaggerated but probably lied about his capabilities to her line manager and said things that really could have affected his entire career with that company. In other words, to put it simply, our friend, a talented young man who hadn't done anything wrong except by being chosen as his colleagues as employee of the year, had an enemy within the system, so to speak. Let's suppose that this young man came to you as he came to me and says, what should I do? How should I respond? How should I deal with someone like this guy's wife who's so intent on, on her purposes in undermining me and who in effect was acting like an enemy towards him. And while you're just thinking about that for a second, let me ask you another question. Do you too maybe have enemies in your life? Maybe at work, maybe you have an enemy next door. I know for some people that is a profoundly difficult situation where you live next door and your neighbor is ill disposed against me. Maybe you have someone in your extended family who doesn't like you and is set against you. 
I've heard that story several times about how people from extended family, particularly if it's a new relationship that you go into, how members of the of the new family just don't accept or even like the, the person. I think it's not unreasonable to describe that person as an enemy in the sense that they're acting against you. So my question is, how should we deal with these situations? How should we deal when someone sets themselves up against us actively on a personal level? Now, there are many passages in Scripture that speak to this issue, but none more so, so directly and in more detail than I'm aware of anyway than this passage from the Sermon on the Mount, particularly the version as recorded in Luke chapter 6 here. So today's passage, we're going to look into that command of how we should deal with the situation. And it is given as a command, friend, and we'll break it down into two distinct parts. In the initial segment, the Lord provides us with specific instructions, all of which can be encapsulated in the overarching command he gives that we are to love such people. But the second part of the passage, beginning in verse 32, then elucidates that the reasons behind this directive. Uh, thus, the message is divided into two parts, the command on how and practically it works out and the reason behind it. And guess what? I'm going to read the first section, which is Luke 6, 27 to 31. And guess what is titled in my Bible? It says, love for your enemies. Okay, let's hear what it says. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who ill treat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Now, it should come as no surprise, especially if you're familiar to the Bible at any level, that the solution to the question of how to deal with an enemy, it's a very common phrase, we hear it around, but succinctly it can be summarized by the, the expression, we are to love our enemies. Easy said, not so easy to do. So let's commence the first part, which is telling us exactly what and how the action is we should take. And in verse 27, the straightforward command is given to us, it's presented to us, and it says, I say to you, it's Jesus speaking, love your enemies. Now, to better understand who is considered an enemy, it's essential to hold us within the context of the verses that have just preceded that we looked at yesterday. And in verse 26, it implies anyone who is set against you, anyone who does not speak well of you, particularly in relation to you as being a believer, as a follower of the Lord, they can be reasonably categorized as enemies. Then in this opening verse we're looking at today, we see the Lord advising us to do good to those people who hate you, to do good to those who curse you and those who spitefully manipulate, use you, all those people that we can describe and are described here as enemies. It even tells us in the verses here that even if we're suffering the potential for enduring physical abuse, we should respond by being, uh, in a sense, if we're struck on one sheet, we should offer the other. Hence the question that arises in my mind, 
if there's anyone listening to this, to this, maybe you have someone in your life who does not speak well of you, someone who curses you or spitefully takes advantages, uses you, misrepresents you, misrepresents what you say, misrepresents what you believe. If so, it's reasonable to assume and classify those as an enemy. Now, that's a strong word, but it's reasonable to do it. But also, you've got to hold it in tension with the fact that God is using that designation to be so we can be absolutely clear how we should respond to them. And the fact is that we are not to show hate in return to them, but instead in recognizing them as such, as enemies, people who are set against us, then we can be absolutely sure that these are the very people we should be prompted to respond in the particular way, the correct way that's being described here. And the way to deal with such people is it tells us we are to love them. Now, when I first became a Christian, grappling with this concept was a challenge. Easy to say, as I say, but not so easy to do. How could I love someone that I didn't even like? Is that even possible? Is it possible to even like them, let alone love them? Well, it took me some time to work this through and for me to get and understand the distinction between the biblical word for love and the way most people think of it today. You see, there are four types of love mentioned in the Bible. They're called storge, which denotes family love. Uh, you know, your love for your, for your children, your brothers and your sisters. Then there's eros, which is associated with passionate romantic love. Philia or philos, representing the love of friendship and tender af uh, affection. That is seen between pro close friends. And then finally, agape. and that is the word that is used here. Someone defined agape love as incomparable, irreversible goodwill towards another. And let me also reveal that agape, or some people call it agape, agape love is not an emotion. It's not necessarily, it's not even something that you need to feel. It's a choice that you make, a way in which you relate to the other person person showing them an irreversible sense of goodwill. Individuals who exercise this godly agape love are those who do not allow themselves to take the injury, to turn into resentment or harbour bitterness or harbour anything that allows them from still seeking the highest good for the other person. And this type of love is never based upon the merit of the other person, but stems from the deliberate choice of the individual to be the person who will practice favour, merit, unconditional love and favour towards them. This distinction is really important because it tells us that the Bible does not require us to necessarily like the person, certainly not like what they're doing, it clarifies that you don't have to have that sense of other types of love and affection towards them. You just have to love them agape love. You don't necessarily have to have any sort of tender heart towards them, although that might very well come when one practices this first type of love. But even if they hurt you, you still have to choose to do what's best for them. Now, I know this is not easy. Let me be clear. There may be occasions that might even be 
taking a stand against them when they're doing something that is significantly wrong. There may be occasions where it is a loving thing to do to participate in a legal process which may see that person punished. And even that can be in their best interest. I'm obviously thinking about things like domestic violence or workplace situations where there's, a, there's some degree of dishonesty going on. However, even within those responses, they can only be done with that sense of agape love if you exclude any sense of personal revenge in your actions. According to a Greek scholar, I read a guy called Barclay, agape describes an active feeling, a choice to, to stay in a state of benevolence towards that other person. It applies regardless of what that person does. We must never allow our desire for them and our actions toward them to be anything than motivated by the highest sense of good. It involves a deliberate, purposeful effort to be kind and show favour to him. And this interpretation is the absolute core of what it means to love our enemies by ensuring that irrespective of their actions towards us, even if it's insulting, mistreating or injuring, we are always to focus on what is ultimately best for them, their highest good. So when Jesus is saying that we are to love our enemies, he's referring to us making an act of will choice where we choose to do what we know is best for that other person, even when they're doing the very worst for you. Now, the subsequent verses in the passage, moving on from verse 27, outline a series of commands that illustrate what it actually practically means to love your enemies. It, of course, included doing good when they hate you, blessing them when they curse you, returning like with the opposite, and giving honour even to those who are mistreating you. The overarching idea is about actively seeking the well-being of the other person always. Praising them for anything legitimately that you can find praiseworthy in what they're doing and demonstrating kindness whenever you see any aspect of it, even if at other times you're facing opposition and adversity from them. I think it also suggests that you can't actually find anything really actively, honestly good to say about them, then just bless them and pray for them. In Matthew chapter 5, in his version of this teaching, it even mentions that this even applies to those who are actively involved in the act of prosecuting you at that moment. The idea being that you are to pray for anyone who's hostile against you in speech and action. That's the way to respond. Which, of course, is exactly what Jesus did when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know what they, what they do. They were actually crucifying him and he prayed for them. And this is exemplified in an earthly version for us when it talks about if they strike you on one cheek, then offer the other cheek. So it's talking about saying that we should not retaliate. It, it's talking about not responding to a physical uh, thing with another physical response. Now, the term cheek actually is probably better translated as jaw. I didn't know this till I approached this passage recently in preparation for this today. So this passage is actually indicating more, more than a slap. It's probably an actual punch. But the idea is that we are not 
to retaliate when we suffer blows, emotional or physical, but we are to absorb those blows and try and turn the situation and respond in good will towards that person as a way of winning them over. Now, similarly, in verse 29, it talks about another practical example. It says, if someone takes your coat, which is in those days was the outer garment, offer them the inner garment as well. But the more than being just about physical, actual situations, this is more a picture, a metaphor that is encouraging us to be generous towards those, even when someone is not being generous towards us, even when someone is perhaps taking from us, and that we must not respond with any sense of retribution. And the overarching message is to give in return, to bless in return, and always to underpin it by understanding we must always never retaliate. Verse 31 of this opening section encapsulates the principle, just as you want, would want to be treated by someone else, you should treat them the same way. If you want to know how to treat an enemy, figure out how you would like to be treated by that person. Imagine what it would like we should be like, and then act in that way yourself, act that way accordingly. The command is to love, but the love is to do, to go, to do the, these things, to bless, to play, and to treat others always as you would wish to be treated. However, the text does acknowledge that this response is not in any way the most natural or intuitive way to, uh, to respond in these situations. And one might reasonably wonder, why would you choose to act this way? What are we going to get out of it? What is, how is this situation going to change with it? Well, now in the second half of this short passage today, the subsequent verses following on provide some insight, some insight into the reasoning behind why we should love one's enemies. Let's pick it up at verse 32, where it says, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to do to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Okay, but probably the surprising part of this passage, this short passage, is the fact that the Lord here is suggesting doing good without expecting any form of credit or repayment. However, upon closer examination, it's become, it becomes evident that the point is that you're not doing it in order to seek credit from those that you're helping. But instead, it's encouraging you to see that any reward that comes in this situation, don't expect from, the, from them, but any reward that may be there will actually come from the Lord himself. The repetition of this idea is clear. There's elements to it. Love your enemies, do good, lend without expecting anything return. And the reward is mentioned in the sense that it's reminding us it's not going to necessarily come from those people. It may, it may even be unlikely that it will, but it will there will be a reward from God himself. If you follow these commands and live in this way, 
Then it says your reward will be great. And nothing greater can it be when it tells us you will actually feel and know that you're a child of God. So the primary reason for loving your enemies is not about expecting something back from them. It's about having that sense of reward by God. And then it gives us a second reason why we should do this. And that's found in verse 36, which says, as well as being rewarded by God, it says, in, by doing these things, we are actually being like our Father in heaven, being like Jesus, his Son. As children of God, we are imitating, and by doing these things and responding in this way, we're imitating the kindness and the mercy of the Father. And that should, if we really are Christian believers, should be our natural response. Point is, you don't do these things to win over your enemies. You simply should be doing them to reflect the character of your heavenly Father. And in doing that, we can reasonably anticipate a reward for being like him from him. In essence, this simple message here is that in dealing with enemies simply involves loving them. And by doing so, you're mirroring the, mirroring the mercy of Father God. You're living a life in the same way as Christ did. And you don't do that expecting reward from the people you're being kind to. The focus is not on winning people over to you. It's about aligning your actions with the godly principles that God himself has given us, therefore receiving ultimately divine approval from him. And then we'll close off with Matthew 5, 11 and 12, whose last two verses give us a final perspective on this whole issue. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So here we see Jesus reminding us, encouraging us as his followers, then today and then and that day and us today, is that we should rejoice in all of these situations, that we should even be glad even when we face persecution, because we are being promised here that great will be our reward in heaven. In the first verse, he specifically addresses that those people who are reviled, those who are persecuted, those who are falsely accused, particularly for his sake, it urges them to rejoice because of the fact that A, it's evidence, that you're living the godly life and be because of the promise of a heavenly reward to come. Having an enemy in this way, someone who's spiritually set against you, presents an opportunity that those of us who aren't facing this form of, of persecution or discouragement, it, we don't have the opportunity. So instead of having an overarching negative view of the situation, we should actually see it as a chance to demonstrate God's character. And the, the, the result of that will be, as a bonus, if you like, that we will be rewarded by our Heavenly Father in the kingdom to come. See it as an opportunity. I've got an enemy, and that's great, <laughs> because now I can show them how much I love, I love the Lord Jesus. I want to live a life like him. And you do that in the knowledge that you will be rewarded by your heavenly father by being called and recognized as a, his, his child, a child of God. 
Now, I began today's talk by telling you this uh, scenario about this guy who came to me a few years ago about how he had become an enemy at work. And let me tell you what he did in order to deal with this situation. Well, he basically got nicer in return. But of course, that initially didn't sit well with the trailers. However, one day he overheard her talking with her husband about the fact that they were moving home that weekend and they had a lot of packing to do and how they possibly, how could they manage to get some of the larger items across town when the car they had, both cars that they had were quite small and how they were going to struggle to move and whether they could needed to or even they could afford to hire a van. So our friend in hearing that, the ex-employee of the year guy, he went to her and said, you know, I have a large estate car, we call them in the UK. Is it a shooting brake or something in the States? I'm not sure. It's a large open square back car. And he said, I heard what you're saying. I could come over and help you pack and move on the day. And that's what he did. And he spent the day with them, helping them pack things and move into the new house. And you know what? Because of that, they actually became friends thereafter. And I think that sort of, it's a very practical, simple thing, but it perfectly illustrates the kind of thing, things that we ought to be doing and expressing what is called here this agape love. I think what the passage is talking about is that we're not to respond with some spiritual, supernatural, stormtrooper type response. You know, expressing love in itself, when we're expressing it towards someone who is set against us, who is spiritually ill-disposed to us, that very act is a powerful supernatural thing in itself. Especially when someone doesn't like you, especially all the more if someone's lying about you, especially even all the more so if they're actually actively set and doing things to undermine you. And like that guy I told you about in this work situation, all he had to do in his response was actually step back, listen to them and their situation and figure out a way he could offer to do something that was good for them. And remember, even though he did that, yeah, in this situation, it worked out that they became friends. It won't always do that. But remember, as a bonus, by acting in that opportunity, in that way, he had an opportunity to be and live like his heavenly father and also know that he would be rewarded by him. And that's why we should always love our enemies. Okay, friends, that's it for today. I hope you find out a helpful and insightful passage. I do hope this passage actually practically inspires you to see situations like this, your enemies as opportunities for your own personal spiritual growth and for an opportunity to reflect the divine love of God, the agape love that God has for all of us, including all other people. Remember, in loving your enemies, you're choosing to actively imitate Jesus and reflect, become more like 
your heavenly Father as we live our lives on earth. So thank you for joining me on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And until next time, I trust that you will be able to apply this transferred power of love, this guide that we've been given in our interactions and relationships with other people. So with that in mind, I'll sign off now and just remind you to pay us a visit sometime on the Bible Project at buzzsprout.com, where there you'll find lots of ways in which you can access the additional free resources that I put there. Always free, always copyright free, always freely available. Thanks to you for being with me today, and I do hope I'll see you back here again tomorrow. Bye for now.